Coming up on Mayo Clinic Q&A. This is taking us a long way toward the concept, the general concept of herd immunity. And we're reaping the rewards of that. I mean, you can go shopping, you can go to a restaurant, you can fly in an airplane. I mean, that's wonderful. That concept of herd immunity is from the millions of individuals who have received the COVID-19 vaccine. But for those who are still vaccine hesitant, waiting for herd immunity could lead to getting the disease from fast spreading variants. For you and I that have been vaccinated, life is resuming back to normal. But for the unvaccinated, they now live in a phase of the pandemic where we're seeing circulating variants that are much more transmissible, maybe cause worse disease than what happened last year at this time. Welcome everyone to Mayo Clinic Q&A. I'm Dr. Helena Gazelka. We're recording this podcast on Monday, June the 7th, 2021. As of last week, more than 50% of the adult population in the United States and more than 40% of the population overall are vaccinated fully against COVID-19, so that's great news. We are making progress, but there's been some slowing in the numbers getting vaccinated, and that's concerning. The good news is that things are relatively safe for those of us who are vaccinated, and the country's starting to open up and function normally again as the COVID-19 rates decline. Well, here to discuss with us today is Dr. Greg Poland, virologist and infectious disease expert at Mayo Clinic. Hey, Greg. Good morning. Good morning. Happy Monday. Thank you. And you know, you're so uh, you're so right, Helena. By by reaching these higher levels of immunization, we are seeing an opening. I mean, it's almost like a birthday celebration yes. to have people <laughs> out and about. It is almost like a birthday celebration. <laughs> So, Greg, tell us uh, about the latest numbers and what you think. Well, you're, you're exactly right. You know, over 300 million doses of COVID vaccine have now been administered in the U.S. We have over 50% of the population. So I'm talking about this is including kids who are not yet eligible. So when you take the whole population, we have about 50% who have received one dose and about 42% that have gotten both doses. So this is taking us a long way toward the concept, the general concept of herd immunity. And we're reaping the rewards of that. I mean, you can go shopping, you can go to a restaurant, you can fly in an airplane. I mean, that's wonderful. It is wonderful. Say, Greg, uh, I had read somewhere, however, that teenagers weren't being vaccinated as rapidly as we would like, is that just reflective of uh, adults in the same areas or is there a difference between the two groups? Yeah, you know, that's the other side of the coin from what I was just talking about. We're not yet up at 70% when we look at the whole US. Some states are, I think 12 mm -hmm. or 14 states now are at 70%. The, the issue I think with adolescence is several fold. One, people are remembering back a year ago when kids really did not uh, manifest high rates of infection. That has changed with these new variants. 25% of our hospitalizations due to COVID in the US now are adolescents and kids. I think that's one issue. I think a second issue is the adolescent uh, approval came just as we were coming out of the pause over the J&J &J vaccine. I think that probably scared some people. 
And then you're exactly right, Helena, we see regional differences, I mean, profound regional differences. And where we see those differences in adults, we're seeing those same differences in adolescence. That makes sense. Say, Greg, I had seen that Moderna is seeking FDA uh, approval of their vaccine, uh, full approval. And I'm so I'm wondering if you can explain again what the difference between emergency use authorization and uh, full approval of a vaccine is. Yeah, yeah. So the full approval is the full gamut. In other words, this is once once it gets what's called a BLA, a biologics license application approved, and it's considered fully licensed. The company can market direct to consumers. They could sell to um, uh, private physicians, etc. EUA is a little different as we've talked about in the past. That's emergency use authorization. And there you have to have some conditions, a public health emergency, no other way to uh, prevent or treat uh, a disease. And then a, a ruling that the vaccine appears to be safe for, or may be safe for the indication. Whereas with a BLA, the company, or rather the FDA is saying the vaccine is safe for the indication. And Greg, do you think that that full approval would have a big um, impact on how people feel about receiving the vaccine? That's going to be a very interesting and as yet open question. Um, my sense is that it will push some people forward. More importantly, once it's licensed, then I think it's a lot easier for companies, hospitals, uh, and other entities, maybe even schools, to mandate the vaccine. I think it's very difficult to oh, do sure. that with an EUA. Now, the EEOC has ruled that companies can do that, even under EUA. But I think once you have a BLA, I think it makes much more sense and is easier to do. Sounds like all those initials people get after in their names, and sometimes I don't know what they are. But. <laughs> Greg, tell us what's going on in the world of COVID-19 research, vaccine research, et cetera. A lot of interesting things. Um, one is that Regeneron got approval to give their combination monoclonal uh, antibody by sub-Q injection, subcutaneous injection, rather than requiring intravenous infusion and at half the dose. So that's gonna be helpful. I think the second thing as we've talked about is we're actually entering in for the unvaccinated, a dangerous phase of the pandemic. For you and I that have been vaccinated, life is resuming back to normal, but for the unvaccinated, they now live in a phase of the pandemic where we're seeing circulating variants that are much more transmissible, maybe cause worse disease than what happened last year at this time. And I think the people who are unvaccinated may not realize that. I think another trend that we're seeing is with so many adults immunized, COVID is becoming, as predicted, a younger people's disease. And so it really is going to be important to immunize them. The next studies are, are being done uh, down to age nine, and they'll continue to march down to about six months of age. And, and one issue, and I should reiterate this, everything that you and I discuss 
is at one level provisional. In other right. words, you know, we're not even at two years yet So uh, with, with this virus. So there's still a lot to learn. Nonetheless, we have to take the results of uh, our studies and our science to date and make policy. We don't want to do what India and other countries have done where it's just been out of control. We've seen that in some of our own cities. Mm -hmm. So we have to make policy. We have to give people advice on what to do. I think one area of research is, do they benefit from a dose of, or, or two of vaccine or not? Uh, are they going to be basically at the same level of us and over time, perhaps see a lessening of immunity and require boosters? That's still an active area of investigation. So Greg, when you are thinking about boosters um, and you're thinking about efficacy of vaccines, do you have to consider the very mild cases of COVID-19 as well, or is it mostly that we want to prevent people from getting very ill and being hospitalized? It's a really good question, Helena, and, and I think of it sort of as a priority. Priority one is we want to prevent people from dying. Mm -hmm. Priority two is we want to prevent them from having significant complications that impact the quality of their life. Priority two or three is we want to prevent surge demands on the medical system. Now, when you get to things like asymptomatic and mild disease, to me, here's what that question turns on. If it's mild disease like influenza, you recover and move on with your life, no problem. But one thing that's different about COVID that we've begun to learn is that we have surprisingly high rates of people who develop so-called long haul COVID. That can occur, it turns out, even with mild disease. Hmm. So were that, as we do the research, if we find out that that is indeed a big problem, even among people with mild disease, that would be an important group to try to prevent disease in so that they don't have these long haul symptoms. Yeah, that makes sense because yeah. there's a lot of morbidity associated with the long and, haulers. And, and particularly, you know, when you're talking about uh, how do we think about immunizing children when we get down to very young ages? Well, again, if they're going to suffer long-term complications, even though the likelihood of dying from COVID Based on what we know right now, that could be different with newer variants that come along. But based on what we know now, children rarely die. I think we've had about 300 to 400 deaths in the U.S. Those are terrible, but it's 300 to 400, not 600,000 uh, as we've had in, in adults. So those are sort of the considerations that you think about. So Greg, continuing on the research topic, um, I believe that Johnson & Johnson is doing a study where they give a second vaccine eight weeks after the first one or so. Why, um, if one of their vaccines is enough? And what do you think about that? Yeah, so they're doing what's called their Ensemble 2 study. So it's a phase three study. And you're exactly right. They're giving two doses of their vaccine rather than one, following those people over a two-year uh, time period. Half will get a second dose of the vaccine, half will get a second dose that's placebo. 
So they'll measure the safety of doing that and they'll measure the efficacy. So obviously the reason that you do that is when you look at prevention of mild to moderate disease, the Johnson and Johnson vaccine has a little lower efficacy than you see with the mRNA vaccines. Now, when you're looking at hospitalization prevention of death, equally is good. I think the other thing that they're doing is they're looking forward as the mRNA manufacturers are to what if we need boosters? What if you need an enhancement of immunity to protect against any of these variants? So that's the reason for their two dose study. Greg, uh, Dr. Fauci uh, made a statement uh, regarding how the HIV has helped contribute uh, to the COVID-19 vaccine research and how that might work in Converse as well. Can you explain that a little bit? Yeah, his comments over the weekend were, were really more, uh, I would call them a little more indirect. In other words, um, we did not develop mRNA vaccines because they had been developed for HIV. There's nothing right. that direct. Now, it does turn out that the adenovirus vectored vaccines are being tested uh, for HIV. But I think what he primarily meant was this. We have realized that if you put research money out there and you mobilize the army of brilliant scientists and physicians that have been involved in this and you engage the manufacturers, we were able to produce spectacularly effective vaccines in less than a year. You know, it's, it's worth pointing out that, uh, what was it, Saturday was the 40th anniversary of the first HIV case. So wow. this is 40 years versus one year for COVID. So what have we learned that uh, we learned from HIV? We learned that when you put networks of investigators together, we've learned a lot about what are called structure function studies. In other words, how do we look at the structure of a virus and from that develop a vaccine platform? We've learned, and this was directly applicable to the mRNA vaccines, we've learned how to choose the viral antigen and stabilize it so that it can actually work to produce immunity. Uh, we've learned how to um, assemble an international network of investigators from HIV studies that directly helped us with uh, COVID studies. So there are a lot of issues like that, that kind of in combination um, were facilitatory. I, I guess I would call it that, of that same application to COVID. Now, of course, the reverse needs to happen. What right. we've learned about COVID and rapidly doing international trials and how you roll out multiple vaccines how you motivate a population to take vaccines now has to be applied to HIV. We need to be past the HIV scourge. That's great. Greg, I have a couple of direct uh, questions from some of our listeners that okay. I uh, wanted to pose to you. The first is an individual who, who tells us that their friend has received the COVID-19 vaccine and developed a headache after the first Pfizer uh, immunization and still has a headache a month later and is concerned about getting a second uh, dose. What do you think about that? 
Yeah, I mean, understandably, when you have a, a side effect soon after a vaccine, the temptation is to blame it on that vaccine. So point one I'd like to make <clears throat> is that temporality is not always causality, as we have found out over and over again. For this particular listener, if you have a headache that's gone on for a month and you're not somebody who's had an issue like that, uh, I would urge that listener to go in and be evaluated. There are a number of things, diagnostic possibilities that go through my head hearing that story. And I would not just say, well, it was the vaccine and leave it at that. I would investigate further. Right. And it also, the other thing I think, Helena, is that you know, having had a side effect after one dose does not guarantee that you're going to have that side effect or even have that side effect in a worse way after a second dose. That does happen, but there's no guarantee that that's going to happen. And when you look at an issue like headache, and you know, I don't wish a month-long headache on anybody, but when you look at the incidence of headache and complications after getting COVID, that is a far worse proposition. So there are people that are put in the unfortunate position, and many of us, myself included, will be in this group when it comes to the possibility of a booster dose. After you've had a side effect, evaluating whether or not you should take a booster dose in light of that side effect will be a, a very individualized sort of decision that you make in association with your healthcare provider. Hmm. A similar question uh, is from a listener who states that their niece had a sore arm for about a week after the first dose. It then went away, but recurred after a week. Her arm was sore again. So should this individual get their second dose? Absolutely. <laughs> and the reason I say that so quickly is, you know, a, a sore arm is something one can deal with, something that one will recover from. Mm -hmm. Whether the sore arm a month later was due to vaccine is, is impossible to know. And they may well have a sore arm after a second dose. That's a common thing to have happen. But that pales in, in, in consideration to the side effect profile that we see in people who actually go on to develop COVID. So a sore arm in service of preventing COVID is, uh, I think for me, that balance of risks and benefits would clearly be in favor of getting the vaccine. Makes sense. Our next listener, Greg, is uh, undergoing chemotherapy for breast cancer and has had a first dose of Moderna during uh, the chemotherapy treatment, wonders if um, uh, she is really protected uh, because she is immune compromised from chemotherapy and um, wants to know how protected she is and should she be tested for antibodies? You know, uh, Alina, my, my heart breaks for many, many patients, my own patients who are in that kind of position or have had organ transplants or are on immunosuppressive drugs. These are people motivated to protect themselves, to protect their communities. Right. They've done what we've asked, which is to get a, a dose of vaccine. I, I would encourage them in several ways. Number one, there are emerging data that I heard about over the weekend 
showing that even in people uh, such as solid organ transplants, people on chemotherapy who got two doses and did not have markers of antibody, nonetheless, very high rates of them had high levels of T cell markers. Mm. So we have the B cell, which is antibody, and the T cell, which is cellular immunity. And lo and behold, many of them, now it depends on what chemotherapy, what immunosuppressive drug they're, they're taking, many of them do develop evidence of T cell immunity and likely would be protected against the more severe manifestations like death, hospitalization, ventilation, uh, et cetera. So, so I think that's one ongoing area of research, but where we have some really encouraging early preliminary data. The second thing is, uh, she, this, the, the listener you're talking about, I gather, has not yet gotten a second dose. So what she wants to do is work with her physician to determine when will her level of immunosuppression be the lowest hmm. and get her dose of vaccine there. Now, a third controversial area is the topic, and we may as well address it, of antibody testing. I get asked a hundred times a day uh, about it. It is a legitimate question in my mind. Of course, the surge demand, if everybody did that, is unmeetable right now. But for patients like the patient that you're talking about, this is my personal opinion as a clinician. This varies somewhat from FDA guidance, but my personal opinion is there are some individuals who are in situations where it's critical to know, did they have an immune response? For that sliver of patients out of the population, it is possible to test those antibody levels we're left with the dilemma of we don't know what level is protective, but when we see high levels of antibody that are similar to otherwise healthy people, we can be reassuring. The problem is if they have lower levels, we don't know what to say because we mm -hmm. don't have a correlate of protection. But, but that is a way, let's call that the art rather than the science of medicine, that is a way in which we can sometimes be helpful as I say, to, to patients who fit into you know, an unusual uh, sliver of the population. But we certainly don't need to be ordering antibody testing routinely. And, and that is the FDA position, and I would agree with that. In general, <clears throat> there's no particular reason to do that because the efficacy is so high. And as I said, we don't know a correlate of protection. So give me a number and I can't really tell you. <laughs> Does that mean you're protected or not, unless it's very high? Greg, the woman in our last question also is wondering if she should um, have friends and family wear masks um, and social distance uh, around her and for how long? Yeah, very good question. I, I would say at a minimum, yes, until she's 14 days past her second dose. That's when we would expect mm -hmm. that if she's going to be immune, it would occur at that time point. And you know, to tell you the truth, that's no different a recommendation than three years ago during influenza season for, for a, a patient like that. We would do this, we would say the same thing. It'd be a good idea to mask when you're outside, wash your hands well, et cetera. We don't want you to get influenza. Well, of course, we don't want you to get COVID either. 
<laughs> right. Greg, I have a similar next question from another listener for you. They received the Pfizer vaccine, but when they received the second dose, they were in the middle of a two-week course of prednisone and wonder um, how covered are they? they? They know that in their county, there's a low rate of vaccination and are wondering, should they get another booster um, because of the prednisone? These are, these are the really good, really practical in the field questions that we face every day. And I mentioned it earlier, we are sometimes in the position of the art of medicine, meaning we don't have direct data to guide us. So we extrapolate from what we know. It's always a little hard to answer so specific a question mm -hmm. without the details, but it depends on the dose of prednisone they were on depends on how long they were on it, and it depends on the timing of those two doses in relation to receiving the prednisone. So it's, it's really hard for me to answer directly that right. question, but, but if that listener wanted to write in with those details, we could uh, certainly you know, offer some guidance, as could their local healthcare provider. And Greg, are we recommending a third dose of the mRNA vaccines or booster dose to anyone at this point? So at this point, there are no data showing either safety or benefit from that. Now, those studies are ongoing. There are studies okay. right now of booster doses that, that are occurring. The early preliminary data suggests that it does bump up immunity and that you, you pay a small price in terms of reactogenicity for it. But those are really small and really preliminary data. So we await further trials. And again, this is part of you know, flying the airplane while you're building it. Yeah. We're, we're less than two years into this. So it's by definition, not possible to know a lot of the answers to these questions. We're having to discover them as we go along with an eye toward the best possible protection of the population. But our listeners continue to challenge you, Greg. They do. They ask very good questions. <laughs> very good questions. As they should. And, you know, I find it, I, I personally find it motivating and encouraging that we have people who look at the data, who want to know, who are trying to do the right things. And, uh, you know, I wish sometimes I had very black and white, clearer answers, but we just don't have the data in a lot of cases. And so we appeal to what we know in the art of medicine. Anything else to share today, Greg? That's the end of my mailbag. I think we did a good job answering uh, the question. I, I think, you know, I still wanna encourage people to be immunized. We are now at over 600,000 deaths in the US. Hmm. That's one, we are now at one out of every 535 Americans has died from COVID and its complications. So I do worry, Helena, I, I, I worry a lot actually, that as we are at historically low levels, we now have, you know, compared to this uh, past winter when we were having 3000 COVID deaths a day, we're now down to about 360 deaths a day. That's remarkable mm. progress. Sounds and, like a lot though. Yeah, I know. And, and people see everything open and they see, you know, us celebrating, et cetera. But if you are unimmunized, you run quantifiable risks. 
who wants to be the last one to die in a war is what keeps going through my head. Mm -hmm. So if you're not immunized, please consider getting immunization. We have now given over 300 million doses of these vaccines. We know their safety profile. We know their efficacy profile. And we are now in a phase, as I said, where what's circulating are variants that didn't circulate a year ago. So don't depend on your knowledge of six months ago or a year ago. That has changed with these new variants. So please talk with your healthcare provider about getting immunized. And the same goes for adolescents and as we get there, children. Say, Greg, what you just said um, about encouraging people to get vaccinated <clears throat> brought something to mind. Um, a friend recently told me that they did not plan to get vaccinated because so many people were getting vaccinated uh, that then they wouldn't need to. What do you yeah. say to that? So there's actually a term for that. It's not a very nice term, but it is descriptive. It's called freeloaders. So in <laughs> other words, you all bear uh, the, it, there's no expense in this case, but the expense, the side effects, et cetera, of getting the vaccine and I'll be protected. Well, that works when you have 70, 80% of the people around you immunized, but you don't know who's immunized and who isn't when you go into the grocery store, at work, at school, at church, or any of the activities that you do. And as I say, you run the risk of getting infected with one of these variants, and it's nasty. It is nasty to get this disease and uh, to depend on the immunity of others. The other thing, of course, is that even there, there will be some people who are immunized who are not protected. That's true with every vaccine. So just because somebody tells you they're immunized doesn't necessarily mean that they're 100% protected. <laughs> so you run risks and you're, you're running a calculated risk that I think the math does not bear. Makes sense. Thank you, Greg, for being here today. Of course. Words of wisdom from Dr. Greg Poland from the Mayo Clinic. Thanks for being here today. I hope that you learned something. I know that I did. We wish each of you a very wonderful day. Mayo Clinic Q&A is a production of the Mayo Clinic News Network and is available wherever you get and subscribe to your favorite podcasts. To see a list of all Mayo Clinic podcasts, visit newsnetwork.mayoclinic.org. Then click on podcasts. Thanks for listening and be well. We hope you'll offer a review of this and other episodes when the option is available. Comments and questions can also be sent to Mayo Clinic News Network at mayo.edu.